0: modern modern modern
1: we're prepping for a voyage modern the force of an old fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration
0: why don't you make that a double
1: modern bar cart hey everybody thanks for tuning into episode 7 of the modern bar cart podcast I'm your host Eric Koslick, and I'm extremely excited to share this sciencey nerd out session with you all. I dropped by Gettysburg College, my undergraduate alma mater, to catch up with Professor Dan McCall, who's doing really interesting research in the field of taste and smell perception. As you'd imagine, he's got a lot of really cool insights into exactly what happens when you take that first amazing sip of your favorite cocktail. Some of the topics we discuss include the evolutionary bases for smell and taste, the brain structures and psychological mechanisms responsible for flavor perception, cocktails as a psychological playground for flavor decision-making, cultural flavor preferences in France and the U.S., the magic of black currants, and much, much more. If you liked my interview with Colleen O'Brien, where we talked About herbs and seasonal flavors, then I have a feeling that this episode is also going to be in your wheelhouse. And while you're listening, don't get intimidated if you hear a few psychological terms. Dan always does a really good job of breaking down complex things like brain structures and sensory pathways into their most basic, easy-to-understand form. This conversation is a true treat for your brain, so settle in and enjoy my conversation with Professor Dan McCall. Dan, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Today, folks. As I mentioned, I'm, I'm meeting with Professor Dan McCall here at Gettysburg College, which is my alma mater. And interesting little fun fact, uh, Dan, you were actually my advisor for uh, for a little while, right? Briefly, I yeah, think, yeah. Yeah, we were. So that <laughs> this is like at this point, I think five, six years mm-hmm. ago at the very least here. Um, so back then I, I had no clue that we'd be sitting in this room talking uh, all these years later. And then you also knew my wife before I did. That's right. I was yeah. her advisor and research supervisor. Yeah. yeah. So, Professor McCall is somebody I immediately thought of when I wanted to do a, an episode on flavor and how flavor works and and how we can use it to enhance our experience as home bartenders. So can you just give folks a little bit of background about who you are uh, for maybe why you're interested in flavor and maybe some of the more technical things that you do with flavor on uh, a daily basis?
0: Sure. Yeah. I'm an associate professor of psychology at Gettysburg college and I, uh, my research area is in, Uh, smell perception and flavor perception. I do work with adults and with children, trying to understand the basic psychological processes involved in flavor perception. There's a lot of multidisciplinarity in in flavor perception research. There are people who are chemists and people who are physiologists and biologists and geneticists even. But my approach is from the the position of a psychologist. So I'm interested
1: in the sort of behavior and the decisions we make um, in normal eating, and drinking behavior. Great. Can you maybe give folks an example or two of the things that you're working on right now or that you've recently published?
0: Sure. Um, Some of the work that we're doing now has to do with um, the associations we make with smells and with flavors. We are not great at at identifying odors by name. One of the weaknesses of human olfaction is that if I give you odors to smell and I ask you to identify them, we're pretty terrible at coming up with the names of what those are. But one of our strengths is that we're good at making associations between odors and other um, sensory systems. So odors are strongly linked with, for instance, visual experiences, textures, um, colors. And so we have a line of research where we're looking at how do children and adults make associations between odors and various other visual properties. So for instance, you might do something like present an odor to a child and ask them, which color does this smell like to you? And kids, you know, the question sounds weird, but kids will give you an answer to that. They'll you present them with something that's even non-familiar to them and give them an odor of like a lavender, which kids don't really, kids in America at least, don't really know very well. And they won't pick purple, but they'll pick green to go with lavender because they recognize it's sort of a plant smell. So we have a a, a line of research where we're looking, we've tested kids in France and the US and we're looking at cultural differences in that and developmental differences over time and how that kind of association process changes.
1: That's great, wow. So obviously some really interesting research going on here, trying to tease out some of the relationships between flavor and the mind and and how that influences our daily feelings and activities. I want to jump in here maybe as sort of like a foundational discussion we can have. You mentioned you do olfactory and flavor perception research and olfaction is basically the human smell system. And I'm hoping that you might be able to speak for a little bit on how those two are related and maybe as that pertains to two pet words of mine, taste and flavor.
0: Sure, exactly. Well, um, I think I'd first distinguish between taste and smell. And when we use the word taste, <clears throat> we're referring to the what happens in the tongue, the basic tastes. And right now we classify really as five, there are five basic tastes, there's sweet, sour, bitter, salty, and now umami, which has been added over the last 15 or 20 years or so. Um, so taste is really what happens in the tongue when molecules of, you know, the sugar molecule or a salt molecule or the bitter molecule lands on receptors on the tongue and triggers the taste sensation. The smell is what's happening in the nose, of course. Um, and there's a much wider range of stimuli that can trigger a sense of smell. Any volatile molecule of the right size that's floating in space can uh, land on the right receptors if you have a receptor for that molecule and you'll experience a sense of smell. Flavor is the combination of the two. So when we use the word flavor, we're referring to a combination of taste and smell. When you bring food into your mouth um, and you chew it, the saliva interacts with it, it helps release those volatile floating molecules that travel up to the nose um, through what we call the retronasal route <laughs> it means there's a, a pathway that comes from the back of your mouth up into your nose and those molecules get up into your nose and trigger the sense of smell and the, the best way to really experience this is to to pinch your nose if you take a Piece of food into your mouth, and the thing I always like to use is uh, a little sour candy, a Sour Patch candy. You put pinch your nose, pop it in your mouth, and start chewing, and you'll experience the taste by itself because there's no airflow up into the back of your nose while you're pinching while you're pinching your nose. So you'll get the sweetness, you'll get the sourness, and then as you release your nose, any odor molecules will be released and allowed to pass up into your nose, and then then you'll get the flavor sensation. So you'll get the the totality of the raspberry flavor or blueberry flavor or whatever it is that you're tasting. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about it is that the experience of flavor, even though it's comprised of separately taste and smell, the experience is a totality. It's a unity that we have. And in fact, it's even even though most of what's, what we call flavor is happening in your nose, the experience is in your mouth. If we ask someone, where do you taste the raspberry? We would say that it's in our mouth. So we have, a, even though it's way up in your nose, it's a couple of centimeters above the bridge of your nose, the experience, we still localize it in our mouth. So, so flavor is this, when well, we use the word flavor, we're talking about a combination of taste and smell, but along with other things as well. So taste that flavor includes the visual appearance of the food, vastly impacts the flavor. The texture of the food, the temperature of the food determines what kinds of molecules are going to be released as you're chewing and ingesting. Your expectations Play a role in your flavor perception. So, is this something that I expect to like or dislike? Do I know what I'm eating, or am I, you know, am I disgusted by this thing? All of those things play a role in determining your flavor perception. So, flavor is a is a wide subject it encompasses a, a vast array of sensory processes and psychological processes as well.
1: That's really interesting. I, I like one of the things that you said early on was that. I guess flavor perception is tied to other senses. So, like when you're when you're asking a, a child to to put a, a color onto a, a, uh, an aroma, perhaps. So, does that is that maybe also one of the reasons why you know even though a lot of flavor happens in the nose, mm-hmm. uh, is that maybe why it's also possible that we get that in the mouth? Is that is that is the aroma getting tied to the physical? Sensation of the food in the mouth and the and the taste is that maybe what's happening? or Is that part of what's happening? Sure Absolutely, and especially with familiar foods I mean
0: you've had a lifetime of eating certain foods and for instance you we all are familiar most of us are familiar with strawberries and Every time in your life that you've eaten a strawberry you've had the taste experience of the strawberry the sweetness of it mm-hmm. You've had the aroma in your nose of the strawberry odors the molecules that are involved with generating a strawberry aroma Um, You've had the visual appearance of the strawberry, the color of the strawberry, the the context of the strawberry, and all of these experiences have been bound together over the course of your life. So any one of those sensory properties of a strawberry could presumably um, arouse experience in the other sensory modalities. So for instance, if I give you a drink that's flavored like a strawberry and I color it red, you'll say that the flavor is intensely strawberry. If I color it green, however, first you might have difficulty even identifying it as strawberry, and the flavor would come out as feeling less intense to you. So because you have this lifetime of experience binding these two sensory
1: properties together, when we violate that, it actually impacts your flavor perception. Wow, that's really really fascinating. So I know... That We kind of jumped right out of the gate here with some some pretty technical stuff and forgive us folks if if we're nerding out a little bit here but a couple a couple things that I want to point out that they're really important right off the bat is that taste is on the tongue and Flavor is a combination of what's going on with your tongue Uh, so the sweet sour bitter salty and umami in combination with the stuff that is happening with your nose and one of the things that that I find really interesting is that there's essentially two routes by which aroma can get to the smell receptors. There's the orthonasal route and the retronasal route, which is ortho being the kind of like if you were to close your mouth and sniff. So, uh, for example, your mom is cooking your favorite meal from childhood. You take a nice deep breath in the kitchen, maybe with your mouth entirely closed. That's ortho, orthonasal. You're inhaling those smell molecules up through your nose. And if you are chewing, for example, we call them maybe volatile uh, exactly. molecules get kind of uh, released by the saliva, by the physical uh, mechanism of chewing. And those actually go up sort of like the back of your throat. So if you've ever like squirted milk out your nose or a beverage out your nose because you laughed, well, that that's possible because the nasal cavity is, is connected to the back of the throat in you know, up behind your mouth. So that's that's also the, the route that these volatile Aroma molecules take when chewing. And so even if you, you know, going back to the nose pinching with the Sour Patch Kid candy example, if you were to still breathe, right, while you were chewing, like if you were to aggressively breathe, you'd probably maybe still get some of that. Exactly. If you, um, well, you've all had the experience of if you
0: uh, have a serious head cold, then you're congested you feel like, you, people say, I can't taste. In fact, you can taste, you just can't smell. So because you're congested, you have the same blockage of this airflow from the back of your mouth up into your nose. You can simulate this by pinching your nose, but you can also simulate by just not breathing. So if you take food into your mouth and don't exhale, you know, try, try to block your respiration as you're chewing, You'll have the same effect where you won't experience the flavor, but then if you exhale through your nose, it will. You'll have the experience of drawing these
1: molecules up into your nose and
0: have the, the smell experience that goes along with it.
1: Sure, I think, and maybe we'll come back to this, especially because I believe you have, uh, you know, you mentioned that you're doing you're doing some research with French children and versus you know American comparison group. I'm pretty sure the first guy to really document this was a, was a French guy, right? Um, Briar Savarin. That's right. And there's a really great book. And we're going to hit some texts here for for folks who are interested in flavor perception. But this one's uh, probably the seminal work in uh, flavor perception in terms of when it was written was something called the physiology of tastes or meditations on transcendental gastronomy. So kind of a, a weird long book title. Uh, but it was by a French guy who, uh, in the 1700s, I believe right around the time of the American revolution and even up through the French revolution, this, this gentleman was collecting some observations that he that he had on how flavor worked and this was interestingly enough around the same time that the restaurant became a thing so it was a really interesting time in terms of uh, what was happening with flavor in europe and, uh, you know, that, that is the text that kind of started this observation and research going. So today, obviously, with the experiments that Professor McCall is uh, describing, we're obviously a lot more sophisticated and we're, we're doing more interesting things. But um, this has been a, a serious area of inquiry for a while. So hopefully what we're going to do in this episode is as we discuss more about flavor As we build on the foundations that we just kind of uh, set up here, we're going to talk about ways that you can use this understanding to enhance your own home bartending game. So that's kind of the overall goal today. But now that we've talked about tastes and flavors, I'm hoping that we can get as far into the weeds as possible without actually using too too much psychological jargon because uh, it's when it comes to brain uh, brain systems it can get I even I get really turned around when we're talking mm-hmm. about that so is is there any way that you, know, you can take us a little bit farther into flavor perception while keeping us still like on the on the path
0: sure I'll need the
1: brain a little bit,
0: but I'll go gentle. (laughs) So, um, flavor, as we said, is a combination of taste and smell, and if we we can follow those two sort of physiologically follow those two systems in the brain a little bit. Taste starts on the tongue, the tongue is bumpy, those bumps are called papillae on the tongue, um, and those are not the taste buds, we usually re- often refer to them as taste buds, but they're not the taste buds. The taste buds are on those bumps, and you have um, upwards of 50 or 150 per bump. And the taste buds are the things that do the reception. So when you, for instance, ingest something, a, a taste molecule of sugar, for instance, Um, The taste buds have taste cells on them those cells have little receptors and I think you think of them as a lock and key type system So the receptor is sort of a lock the sugar molecule is the key that fits that lock And when the sugar molecule floats by in some saliva and lands on a taste receptor you have the experience of of sweet and The taste of sweetness works that way bitter works that way Um, umami works that way Sour and and salt work a little bit differently. There aren't locks and keys for that. Those molecules go straight into the cells and cause activity. But it's similar in the sense that you have the molecule floats by and you get a, a signal. And that signal gets sent back to the brain. And there are a couple of structures in the brain along that pathway, but there is a taste pathway in the brain that's responsible for those signals. And when we get back into what they call the taste cortex in the region of the brain called the insula, there are different clusters of cells that respond to the different tastes. So you can put an electrode, usually in an animal, not in a human, electrode in the right region of of this uh, part of the cortex and you can find a cluster of cells that responds best to sweet taste. So you put sweet taste on the um, tongue of a mouse or a rat and you can find neurons that are active, selective to just sweet. So we think that's the region of the brain that's involved with detecting tastes. Um, Smell also has a sort of a lock and key system, except um, whereas in the tongue, you probably have 40 or so different locks for the different kinds of molecules that you can taste. You have thirty different molecules for uh, thirty different kinds of locks for bitter molecules, um, and a couple for sweet, and a couple for umami. So upwards of forty or so different shapes of locks in the tongue. In the nose, you have uh, over four hundred, so four hundred fifty to five hundred different shapes of locks in the nose. that Each are responsive to different shapes of different molecules of things that we can detect. And of course, there are way more than 450 different kinds of molecules that you can detect, or rumors are vastly more complicated than that. But each receptor can receive different kinds of molecules, but it's all based on shape. It's a lock and key system. So when the right kind of molecule lands on the right kind of receptor, you um, send a signal up into a region of the brain that's right above the nose called the olfactory bulb. And that processes the signal and sends it back to other regions of the brain. There's also a smell cortex region of the brain that helps us identify smells. But what's interesting for flavor is that there's a further structure, if you look deeper into the brain, further upstream from this signal, this pathway, there's a region called the orbital frontal cortex in the frontal part of your brain, sort of behind and above your eyes. The orbital frontal cortex brings signals from different parts of the brain together. So there are signals that come from the taste cortex and signals that come from the smell cortex and signals that come from the vision system, the visual system. And they all come together in this region called the orbital frontal cortex. And we think that's where flavor perception happens is that the, it's this unifying of these signals from these different systems. Um, so if there's a flavor section of the brain, that's probably
1: where it is. Okay really that's really interesting one of the things that i've heard about the brain and i know it to be generally true but i wonder if there's any connection with what yours between what you're saying and the fact that the brain kind of the human brain anyway is the result of you know, as we know, a lot of uh, millennia of evolution, but it started. I hear that the the back of the brain is usually referred to as the re- reptilian brain. The middle of the brain is the mammalian brain, and then uh, maybe the the frontmost parts of the brain, uh, probably including the orbital frontal cortex that you're referring to, is the human brain, I guess, uh, that evolved, you know, especially in primates and humans, is there any connection between the functions that different parts of the brain play in the flavor or taste perception process and where they're located? In terms of how
0: primitive they are, Sure. um, The taste areas tend to be lower level, probably more primitive. The smell areas also are for sort of primitive mammalian system. Um, And certainly, the orbital frontal cortex is, since we usually when we refer to the frontal lobe, that's most developed in humans, Um, and so that's going to be the more complex part. There are other species of animals that have more brain space devoted to different parts of the system. So, for instance, dogs have more brain space for smell. Um, They also have many more receptors in their nose than we do, uh, by a factor of ten or so. So, certainly, most. Organisms, lower organisms can taste and can smell. And so these systems are, they develop early in humans. They're relatively low level. And then as you get to the higher order parts of the brain, like the orbital frontal cortex, the flavor parts of the brain, um, you're dealing with the more cognitive, what we would think of as human,
1: sort of advanced parts. Sure. Yeah. And maybe one distinction and you can correct me if this maybe if maybe if this picture that i'm painting is incorrect let me know but the way based on the way that you're describing it one might say that a dog, for example, could uh, consume a piece of food and have a uh, an experience that is similar to uh, that of a human in terms of the perception of it. Maybe they're even perceiving smell molecules that we can't even uh, approach uh, based on the number and nature of the receptors in their nose that we just don't have in ours. But one might also say that the dog doesn't have the developed frontal capacities to form emotional responses to it in the same way that humans do. Is that maybe, is that, that's kind of a blunt instrument of a statement, I but
0: sure. I would say emotional responses because animals form attachments based on smell the same way that human babies do, for instance. Okay. Um, but in terms of the kind of the cognitive effort that goes into, for instance, the decisions we make about eating apparently you know, like we are we are omnivores right and the so-called omnivores dilemma is this idea that you have a we are organisms that can eat almost anything right um, so how do we make the decisions about what kinds of things count as food or not? And so for humans, it gets complicated because we have personal histories, we have cultural histories, um, we have personal preferences, we have aversions, we have disgusts, right? When we think about the kinds of things that go into certain foods we avoid eating those foods. So we have a whole host of other cognitive and psychological factors, emotional factors that influence the decision-making about what we're gonna eat and what, what we're gonna like that other organisms probably don't have, right? Most, most organisms are food specialists. They have a certain class of foods that they're going to eat. They don't think about it. (laughs) They don't evaluate it. So that's the part that I think is is uniquely human is the sort of decision making. I wouldn't say it's the emotional connection because other animals have emotional connections that are
1: smell related. Okay. yeah, that's really fascinating. And I mean, first observation would be usually I don't I, I don't personally think of animals as having emotions so that's I mean definitely some based on the way that you explained it, it seems like there's some good psychological research to back that up mm-hmm. you know between uh, humans uh, and and animals forming attachments And then the second observation is I I really like what you said about decision-making because when when I talk about cocktails, one of the things that to me separates cocktails from beer wine and straight spirits is the number of decisions that go into making a specific unit of drink. So for an Old Fashioned or a Manhattan, a single unit at a restaurant bar, for example, In a Manhattan, let's say, they have to decide what bourbon to use, what sweet vermouth to use, what kind of glass to put it in. Um, They're also going to be making peripheral decisions about the setting where it's served, uh, what bartender is on that night, uh, what that person's wearing, uh, how that person addresses the customer who orders that Manhattan, whether they allow that customer the opportunity to customize that Manhattan in any way, what bitters are they're using. Is there a garnish with the Manhattan? And to me, these types of decisions aren't necessarily present on the consumer end of Beer wine and straight spirits as much. Yes You can choose what kind of glass you drink it in what temperature who you want to drink it with But there's uh, when it comes to the act of creation Those decisions are made sort of behind a curtain. They're made by the person who produces the spirit and so i think there's a really interesting connection between uh the way that you're explaining the ties between flavor and decision making in humans and the cocktail world i guess uh being so filled with decisions to make so that's really that's really cool uh and i'm gonna have to meditate on that as, as as we speak here and maybe come back to it but is there any way you can talk about a little pseudo scientific fact that I think we've probably all heard at some point? To me, it kind of grates, and I'm maybe it's a, maybe it's not a pseudo scientific fact. Maybe it's a straight up scientific fact that I'm just annoyed with the articulation of. Um, but it's that uh, scent is the sensation or perceptual modality tied most closely to memory, and, and usually I see this in the in the context of like you know somebody will say. Uh, oh, I, have smelled, I can't put my finger on that smell, but it reminds me of, of uh, you know, where I grew up or uh, this, this girl I used to date back in high school or something like that. And then somebody will come on and be like, well, smell is, you know, the, the <laughs> sensation tied most closely to memories. So that makes sense. And I, I don't know, is that, is that true? And if it is, if it does have a grain of truth, why might that be? I'm not sure that I would say that it's the smell that's, it's the sense that's most closely
0: tied to memory. Um, All of our senses are tied to memory. I mean, you think about recognizing a familiar face, for instance, that's a pretty powerful and strong and long-lasting memory. But smell certainly is connected to memory in some interesting ways. This idea is often called, it's called the Proust effect, (laughs) named after Marcel Proust who describes his experience with the the smell of baking madeleines as evoking a very powerful autobiographical memory of being in his grandmother's kitchen as a child. And so, you know, we know that odors do evoke these kinds of strong associations with our past. I, get I said this earlier that, they, that we're, we are not very good at naming odors, so if I give you even familiar odors and ask you to name them, I do this in my classes all the time, I'll bring in a set of 10 familiar odors, things like ketchup and Tabasco sauce and soy sauce and th- chocolate and coffee, things that people generally know. And people have a really hard time coming up with the names if you're just presenting the smell in a little vial without the context. So there there doesn't seem to be a strong connection between the, the experience of smell and the name in memory. So, so that sort of memory is kind of weak. But smells are powerful at evoking emotional memories, autobiographical memories about your past. You have smells that can remind you of a childhood friend or your childhood home. Even though you can't, like you said, you can't put your finger on what the name of that smell is, you can, you have the, the evocation of this memory, and that's quite powerful. It's hard to test that experimentally, so there aren't a lot of studies that test that in the lab because autobiographical memory is so personal and idiosyncratic that it's hard to come up with an experiment to test that. Um, there has been a little bit of that though, and there have been some studies you know, presenting different odors and asking people to come up with memories and uh, looking at the, the power of those memories and how vivid they are and so on. Um, and I recently read a, a, a case study of someone who is having surgery for epilepsy and they stimulated as part of the surgery stimulated the amygdala and the amygdala in the brain is an emotion center in the brain and the woman had an intense odor memory (laughs) evoked as part of the stimulation in the brain so there's some interesting little approaches like that on this so but so certainly there's a connection between your experience of smell and, and your past and we form those kinds of memories the other way that odor um, is connected with memory is in the formation of what we call flavor aversions or taste aversions. These are powerful memories in a way <laughs> that are sort of bodily memories of, of, of odors that have given us problems before. So for instance, if you have an experience with you know, a bad oyster right, making you sick, People will swear off oysters for the rest of their lives and will be unable to ingest an oyster. And often, you know, in the context of uh, alcohol, people have a bad experience with some particular spirit in their youth and then swear off that flavor for the rest of their lives. It's not uniquely human. It's been extensively studied since the 1950s in rats. Almost every species can form aversions in this way. So a, a smell or flavor makes you sick and then you will dislike that usually forever. Right, it's hard to unlearn those kinds of aversions once we get them. The, the, the one exception to that is, for some reason, vampire bats don't form <laughs> taste aversions, but, but they also don't have uh, the range of taste perceptions that other animals do. So, so in that sense, odor memory is powerful, right? Because you can you form an aversion to you know the taste of. Bartles and James wine coolers from my youth, (laughs) (laughs) and and that flavor, or peach—you have a bad experience with a peach flavor, and the the experience can last your life, last a lifetime. And there is a lot of research on that, even research with humans, where it's is an Israeli group that um, put humans in a, a chair and spun them around until they were nauseous and gave them flavors before doing that. And they formed an aversion to that flavor that made them ill. Wow, right? And it's, it, one of the things that's interesting about that is that even though in most of those contexts, we know it may not be the flavor that made me sick. So for instance, you can have dinner and then get sick, but get sick because you get hit with a stomach virus that has nothing to do with what you've eaten. And those aversions can last a lifetime. Even though you know cognitively that it wasn't the food that made me sick, it's not that flavor. Those people in that study knew that it wasn't the the taste of the, the, it was a soft drink they gave them before spinning them in the chair. They knew it wasn't the soft drink that made them sick. They knew it was the chair. But it doesn't matter. Your body's formed an association
1: between the flavor and the illness and has taught you to never touch that again. Basically, That's fascinating. I really like learning about how much is going on below the surface of of what we recognize and i that's maybe part of my interest in the evolutionary aspect of flavor uh, personally i make cocktail bitters uh, so bitterness is it's got a really interesting paradox uh, we are naturally predisposed to be averse to bitter things because bitter things tended to be, in many cases, poisonous. And so, you know, there's this evolutionary, almost like a gag reflex when the bitter paste is activated on the tongue. There's almost like a, you you almost stick your tongue out almost. It's kind of like a, and that's supposed to, you know, be a evolutionary vestige of the gag reflex. And it's interesting that there's also kind of a flip side to it where we kind of even crave bitterness because you know there's been a lot of speculation do we crave bitterness because there's some essential nutrients in there maybe I mean bitter things have been used for medicine for centuries I, we don't always understand the mechanisms behind it perhaps but uh, you know certainly bitters have been a, a folk medicine and in, in combination with other herbs as well um, and, and, and maybe it's it's just because they add depth to flavor I mean as you mentioned it seems 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 like the bitter lock and key mechanisms on the tongue have a lot more variety than some of the other ones. So there's maybe maybe more shades of gray in the bitterness experience than there are with some other tastes. So I just I really like how much of that is going on below the level of our perception. And I'm curious to know if there's anything, any other major things, say when we're sipping on a martini or an old fashioned that are going on behind the scenes, behind or beneath what we can actually, what we're actually thinking about that are big players in the flavor experience. Hmm. That's a good question.
0: The, the The bitter part is interesting, right? Because we, you're right, we are sort of evolved to reject bitter things because bitter usually indicates toxicity. Right. And so it's your body's mechanism for avoiding poisoning, and the gag reflex and the spitting out. I mean, that's part of the mechanism to keep the toxin out of your body. Right? But at the same time. People grow to like that flavor, right? Like some people don't put any sugar in their coffee because they like it. I have relatives in France that eat yogurt without sugar. Some people put pepper in their yogurt, right? So that, that's more sourness than bitter. But the it, but same thing, that sour is a similar taste that is, we've evolved to detect because it indicates spoilage and decay. Mm-hmm. So your body wants to reject these things, but yet we come to like them. And there's been some writing about that. There's a um, guy named Paul Rosin at the University of Pennsylvania that's done research on this and, and has proposed that the idea of benign masochism is underlying this. And he proposed this in the idea of uh, why we like spicy foods, right? For the same reason. I mean, spice, intense heat from peppers is painful and usually we reject painful things, but yet we like... Negative stimulation in the case of horror films or roller coasters. We like to be scared So so we embrace these things that are a little aversive in context in which we can control them
1: <laughs> And what, what did you call it benign masochism benign masochism?
0: Yeah, so it's a sort of masochism But it's benign because we know we won't come to any harm And so when we're adding bitters to our drink, we know that even though there's a taste of bitterness there. It's something that's That that's not really going to hurt us. We know it's truthfully not going to hurt us There are people, however, who reject bitterness more strongly than others. Um, And some of that has to do with genetics. So there are genetic differences in the the makeup of your your tongue, the kinds of receptors or kind of locks that you have for bitterness in your tongue. There are individual differences in that. So there are people who are strong bitter tasters um, that will reject things like bitters in their cocktails or coffee without sugar, broccoli,
1: um, Brussels sprouts, those kinds of things. Is this maybe tied – is this tied to the cilantro gene or is that something – No, that's a different one. Okay. I I only ask because my mom is one of the cilantro gene holders, which means maybe I'm a carrier. Uh, And I really love it, but I can't use it whenever I cook for her because she just won't – she won't get anywhere near it. But yeah, so I think some – a few takeaways. There are so many things going on below the level of our perception that – are really important during the experience of a, of a, of a drink or, or a food, but yeah, I mean, this is a home bartending podcast, so we'll focus on, on the, on the, the drink aspect. Mm-hmm. So a couple terms that we've dropped, <laughs> we'll start with, Benign masochism, the mixing of pain and pleasure, aversions that have been developed over the years or perhaps early in life that a person carries with them for a long time. I think the flip side of that coin would be flavors. Uh, maybe not obsession would be the wrong term because that's a little bit different, but like what would be affinity? Yeah. It would be kind of that'd be the flip side of aversion. We usually use preference. Preference. Okay. So we've got aversions. We've got preferences. We have weird things like benign masochism. So when you're setting up a home bar, a lot of these things for you are going to be kind of assumed. You know what you like. You know what you don't like. On the other hand, when you're entertaining folks, you don't necessarily know what people are going to walk in the door to your home bar liking not liking Uh, you don't know if somebody had a really bad experience with gin when they were in college and these are all things these are sort of the perils I guess the flavor perils of home bartending and I don't think that necessarily it's a useful or good approach to go around worrying about if somebody's going to walk into your house and not like gin or not like tequila or, you know, not like X. But I think a good rule of thumb, a good practical uh, thing to do might be to understand that you should probably have something beyond whiskey or beyond gin on your bar cart to cater to folks with different flavor preferences. And I think some of the best bartenders out there, going back to that, uh, that, ideal bar experience that I was using to give examples of the different decisions that are made when we're when we're producing cocktails some of the best bartenders out there will actually have some conversations with folks about what they like what they don't like and it, to me whenever I've had those conversations I've almost always had a, an incredible drink that that I can remember and so that might be a good access point for, you know, if you're entertaining, if you're, you know, if you've set up your home bar and you're entertaining and you're, you're trying to take into account other people's flavor preferences, maybe a good rule of thumb would be to try and have some conversations with folks about what they do and don't like, because even the most basic conversation is going to reveal something to you that you might be able to use to make that experience more pleasant for them. Is that, is that fair to say?
0: Sure. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Sometimes we take the alternative approach when we host at our house. <laughs> I married to a French
0: woman, so we often follow the French model, which is you determine what the aperitif is going to be that night. So when we invite guests to a dinner party, we have a new cocktail we're interested in trying out, or we just got back from Venice. So we were into spritz for a while recently. So oh, we had a dinner yeah. party and tonight we're having spritz. So, and, and I, you know, I think there's a balance of approaches because on the one hand you want to cater to the person and they cater their taste, but people get entrenched in their own taste preferences and, you know, tend to not veer away from that very much. Whereas, you know, it's nice to introduce people to new things so as well, so I think you know tonight we're trying this cocktail. Let's see if we like it.
1: You yeah, know. I like that, and, and and personally, that's that's where I'm at. Mm-hmm. I, I would if I have a problem with alcohol and cocktails. The problem is not that I enjoy drinking or being drunk or intoxicated it's that i am so curious about the flavors that are going on that Mm -hmm. i when i tend to overindulge it's because i want to keep trying things and keep tweaking things and so i'm with you on the like let's try the new thing and and here's the aperitif of the night so first question is I'll, I'll, I'll state both questions here and hopefully you can answer them one by one. What is this? What is Spritz so that folks at home know? Cause I, I think this is a great, a great cocktail that I definitely want to mention here. And two, do you tend to notice, you know, you said you just, you spend some time in France, you you're married to a French woman and it seems like there might be some cultural differences between the approach to flavor and food and drink. And I, I think listeners would probably be interested in knowing what those cultural differences might be.
0: Sure. Well, the spritz, first of all, is a, a Venetian sort of summer cocktail. It's, um, I'm not going to remember the proportions, but it's Prosecco with either Aperol or Campari. And uh, what else is in there? An orange slice and some soda. Mm-hmm. It's usually with, with ice as well, but not always. And the history of that drink is interesting because it's apparently when um, Venice was occupied by Austria, the Austrian diplomats found the Venetian wine to be too strong. Um, so they asked for it to be watered down with soda, or with the spritz of soda. So the drink evolved over the, over the years to become now it's just called a spritz. And they, it, but it's Prosecco, Venetian Prosecco, mixed with Aperol and okay and and soda.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's a it's a drink that's been making a comeback recently. So uh, we will post a recipe, maybe multiple recipes in the show notes, which folks you can always access by visiting modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast and searching for this episode uh with professor dan mccall it's an interesting cocktail because it actually it it sort of brings back what we were talking about because it's got
0: the the sort of a little bit of sweetness from the prosecco and the orange and the aperol or campari is bitter Mm and so you're getting this combination and sweetness and bitterness actually in combination work against one another so you can mask a little bit of bitterness with a little bit of sweetness so it, it sort of brings together this kind of harmony of multiple different taste systems at the same time, and the bubbles probably help with the aromatics and
1: so on. Right, yeah, I love, I love um, effervescence as a cocktail tool, you know, whether we're talking about a gin and tonic and, you know, putting some lavender bitters as, as the topper on a gin and tonic and the, the the bubbles kind of help you access that a little bit more powerfully. Definitely uh, some good tools. Uh, the other going, question you asked me was about the yeah. cultural differences. Yes,
0: let's, um, let's get to those cultural differences. I'm really fascinated to learn. (laughs) I I think things have been changing over the years. I mean, I'm most familiar with France. We've spent a lot of time there. There is a a different approach to food in France. There is, I mean, everybody gets pleasure out of eating in both countries, but there's a a difference of degree in France. The meal is holy, (laughs) almost. There are some behavioral differences and sort of practices about the way that people eat. Um, A family meal in France is spread out over a long period of time. Courses are delivered still. I eat at my mother-in-law's house and she'll have, you know, one course will be green beans. The second course will be a couple of slices of ham. Even a very simple meal will be spread out like that over courses. And then of course, cheese at the end, wine along the way, dessert, which often is fruit, and, and, and coffee. So, so you can have, you know, in an hour and a half, you can have a really simple lunch where we would all pile it all on the same plate. But spread out of courses, it lends this sort of elegance and, and pacing to the meal that really works. There's been some research looking at cultural attitudes toward food um, in different parts of the world. And the same guy that coined the term benign masochism, Paul Rosnan, has done some work on this, where he asked people to just free associate. What are the first three words that come to mind when you think of the word food? And he asked people to do this in the US and France, and I believe they did India as well, and they just did a content analysis of what are the words that people came up with. And what you got in France were sensory terms. Things like pleasure, names of specific food items, often bread came up as one of the most common terms. If you look in the U.S., and most of the sample he tested were college students, I believe, in the U.S., and the most common terms were, not most common, but more common terms were things um, like fat, you know, sort of of things that, terms that indicated concern and and anxiety about uh, surrounding food less terms about pleasure and and sensory experiences, which is kind of sad, you know? And, And and may say something about the sort of problems that we have in this country with sort of overeating, obesity and snacking and all these other things that we kind of drifted away a little bit from this idea of food for pleasure.
1: Yeah, I've also read somewhere that I I believe the the French are more likely to dedicate a larger portion of their income to food and eating, you know, not necessarily – that uh, I don't, I certainly don't think food is cheaper in France or cheaper in Europe in general, but I, I do believe that they, as a, as a culture are maybe more willing to, to kind of spend on higher quality food, maybe in smaller quantities. Um, I think it's the,
0: the, you know, the presence of farmer's markets, they're, they're connected. Um, I've had periods of time that I've, I've spent long periods of time. A few years back, I spent a full year in France. And I noticed that because you're doing most of your shopping at a farmer's market year round, Your diet and your experience changes with the seasons. You could really see the seasons change in the farmers' market in a way you can't at a grocery store. So we knew it was winter because the endives show up, you know, or the the winter greens show up. Yeah, you know, spring was coming because the food changes at the market. And there's that it it sort of it makes you more connected to your food in a way that we I think we lose here when you go to the supermarket and I can get mangoes year round.
1: Right, and certainly I mean I'm speaking to a, a research psychologist here so I have to drop a, a, a term I, th- I think that mm-hmm. maybe this is a correlation perhaps not a not a causation but I, I one of the correlations that I'm pulling out of what you just said is that in France things were associated with pleasure and they tended to eat they tend to eat in a more sensuous and more focused way than I think that we do or focus might be the wrong term but a more food focused way as opposed mm-hmm. to a more means ends way like this is mm-hmm. this meal is a is the means to the end of of, I need calories today mm-hmm. and the correlation on the other side of that correlation is that, you, you know, you mentioned that, uh, you know, here the words that um, the from the Paul Rosen research tended to indicate anxiety or maybe more just generally less positive emotions about food. And so maybe what that suggests is that there's a, real, uh, a relationship between the way that we choose to interact with our food and the way that we feel about it. Uh, and i think that's a that's a generous enough or a general enough statement to that, that we can agree that it's that it's true but on the home bartending front a simple thing one might do is go to the farmer's market and find some herbs for your cocktails but i just did a, a an interview with colleen o'brien of wild roots apothecary based out of virginia And we had a a great interview talking about the value of, of putting herbs in the cocktails and and she said a lot of similar things about the way that that you know you can watch the world you can watch flavors change with the seasons mm-hmm. um she even met she even mentioned something about uh skunk, uh, skunk cabbage uh as being this you oh, know wow. this this ingredient maybe not in a cocktail uh, maybe more, more from the herbalism standpoint but just as a a really uh sensuous seasonal thing so really fascinating stuff about cultural differences between uh, how we think of not just food but also you know beverages and cocktails here in america For France, I think food is part of the cultural identity. And the interesting thing about cocktails is, I don't think that, you know, if you went out on the street and you asked people, They might not identify the cocktail as something that is uniquely American, but it is Um, the cocktail as we know it today was something that was really developed in America in the 1800s. And there's a really rich, uniquely American tradition about that, even though the precursors to the cocktail were distinctly not American. They were Dutch and they were British and they were Indian. (laughs) And so... I think that there's an opportunity for us as Americans to use the cocktail as a way to kind of take back a more positive relationship with flavor. You know, it's, it's a, as I mentioned earlier, it's a thing that you have to make all these decisions about. And so you have an opportunity as a home bartender, as this really low stakes experimenting with yourself and maybe, you know, a few other people to start making these decisions, in the direction of having a more intimate and connected relationship with flavor. So definitely as you're, as you're listening to this, I'm sure you've already got ideas going through your head about ways you can do this at home. So if you do happen to make any really awesome creations that were inspired by this podcast, maybe our discussion of flavor, maybe by the Aperol Spritz, definitely uh, give us a shout out at modern bar cart on Instagram, tag us in a photo, and we will be happy to share some of your flavor connections with our followers. So getting back to uh, the research before we, hit some lightning round questions here and are there any studies or Types of research or approaches to flavor perception or smell perception that are really noteworthy to you, and and maybe you can talk about stuff like the the way that flavor research is done generally. I think well, there are all 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 different ways that flavor research is done. In
0: the context of psychology, the work that we do here, usually you can see how we're sitting in our lab right now. The the way it's set up is we have testing cubicles, and it's really typical for a sensory evaluation lab like this one where we tend to isolate a research participant. We test them one at a time. We present odors or we present flavors or whatever we're testing, and we close them off in a little cubicle. Sometimes they're sitting at a computer and they're responding to to things on a computer screen. Um, Some of the work that we've done on the kinds of associations we make between smells and flavors and shapes and colors and things like that, we've done here. So we'll do things like present someone with a set of... 10 or 12 different drinks to taste, for instance. Drinks that might vary in their sweetness or their sourness or their color or their whatever it is what we're interested in manipulating. Um, and then we'll present images on a computer screen and ask people, for instance, and we've done studies um, building off some work that's been done in England where you um, testing associations between visual shapes and and odors so you can present a smell or a flavor to someone and ask and present them with shapes that are rounded smooth shapes or pointy sharp shapes and ask them which of these shapes do you think best matches this thing that you're tasting or smelling and people are fairly reliable in those kinds of associations <laughs> yeah so, so they'll pick you know the tingly sorts of odors like mint and sage and rosemary or you know, lavender those sorts of things and they'll match those with pointy st- visual stimuli you know, so, uh, interesting yeah a round or smooth Smoother odor will be matched with a rounder, smoother shape. We do the same thing in language. So if I asked you, you know, if I showed you two different shapes and one was a kind of smooth cloud shape and the other one was a pointy polygon, and I asked you which one of those things is kiki, right? you'd, you'd probably say the pointy one is the kiki one. So sure. we have these, these, what we call them cross modal correspondences between different systems. So we match vision with smell, we match vision with taste. So that's the kind of research that we've been doing here. In terms of sort of interesting studies, I can think of a couple of interesting studies that are relevant for cocktails and wines and things. There was, um, I've been talking about how we, we have strong associations between different senses, so vision and smell and vision and flavor in particular. Our perception of the flavor of things is influenced by the color of those things. And so there's been a lot of research looking at, can you fool people basically by changing the color of the thing that they're drinking? Um, and one of my favorite studies and one that's cited a lot is a French group uh, that went to an enology school. So these are people learning to be sommeliers um, who have a lot of experience with wine already. And they presented them with wines that were um, either a red wine or a white wine or a white wine colored red, colored to look like a red wine, and asked them just to describe those wines using classic wine terms. You know? And so they did an analysis of the kinds of terms that people came up with. And what they discovered is that if you give some of these people a white wine that's colored red, they would describe that white wine as tasting oaky, as tasting essence of blackberry and cassis and chocolate and coffee and those kinds of things using red wine terminology to describe this thing that... Tastes like a right white wine. Wow! Um, so they're completely fooled by the color of this, um, and there have been studies with other kinds of beverages as well. It doesn't. It's not just wine. It works with you know raspberry and lime flavored drinks. You can fool people based on the colors of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so vision is a, it's an important precursor to flavor perception because it sets up expectations for the kinds of things that you're about to taste. Right? I think this is a red wine, and it, it, that expectation is so powerful that it influences your perception. Along that same line, there's some work on expectations influencing, a sort of cognitive expectations influencing our flavor perception. There's a cute little study that was done a few years back on, um, they went to a bar in Boston, this was a group at MIT, and they gave people beer to taste. This must have been a fun experiment. And they had altered the beer, and I think it was a Sam Adams' beer, they altered it by putting a few drops of balsamic vinegar into the beer. And it actually tastes pretty good. I've tried this myself. You put a few drops of balsamic vinegar in a Sam Adams lager, and it honestly, it improves the taste. <laughs> I like Sam Adams anyway, but, this sure. is, but it's pretty good. So if you just give this to people without telling them anything, they rate it fairly positively. They like the taste of it. And then they manipulated whether they told them and when they told them. <laughs> so if you tell people, here I have a glass of beer for you to taste and, and evaluate, I've added some balsamic vinegar to it. And taste it and tell me what you think. And people will rate it pretty negatively in that context, right? Because they've got an expectation. vinegar's supposed to be bad. It sounds terrible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dislike it. So they kind of assimilate their flavor experience to their expectation. Mm. But if you wait until after they've tasted it and then tell them, so I have you taste it, and then they tell you, hey, there was balsamic vinegar in that. Now I want you to fill out your evaluation of how it tasted to you. Right? So you haven't yet evaluated it, but you've already tasted it. And, that, and I give you that information. Mm. Then they liked it. Really? So their 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 judgment wasn't affected if they had already had the flavor experience themselves. So expectations are powerful, right? Yeah. They can they can influence the the your judgment of the quality of a food or a drink. But it depends when you get that information. So if you've already had the taste experience and someone tells you something about it that may be negative, that's not going to impact you as much. And there are probably limits to this, right? If I give you food, I give you a hot dog, and then after you've eaten a hot dog, I tell you it's been contaminated with something.
1: Well, that might affect your right. judgment. Sure. <laughs> but in this context, it was an interesting manipulation, I thought. Yeah. yeah. I, expectations, you know, we, we've talked a lot about expectations here. The color aspect, just or as, as maybe a, a factor of the general... Visual experience is really interesting to me, uh, especially as we talk about how to present cocktails. This is, I think, you know, a lot of people who are just getting into home bartending focus a lot on getting the recipe right. And I think that's really important. I mean, I think, I think it's important to get the recipe right. These recipes have been a long, around for a long time. And I think it's good to get your core set of cocktails down and figure out how to do things like shake and stir, do basic cocktail techniques. And then getting into more of the higher order stuff. I I recently had an interview uh, with a guy named Andy he deals with vintage glassware and he was able to talk to me for like an hour on just how glassware affects people's visual experience of the drink and how how it enhances it. And, you know, so the visual aspect of setting up a home bar is, I'd say, underrated. I think people focus a lot on their selection. People focus a lot on their ability to make the cocktails, which are super important, but maybe based on some of this research that we're learning about color and about just generally uh, the experience of visual, You know the uh, the setting or uh, the other visual and other sensory, whether it's you know temperature or the music that's playing. These things all play into the experience of a cocktail. So maybe take a moment as you're setting up your home bar to think about those aspects of it as well. Think about the glassware that you're going to use. You know, not everybody has a budget for, you know, unlimited glassware budget and it can get expensive, but yeah. How can you get a a really elegant piece of glassware uh, or set of glassware that, that matches the, feeling you want your home bar to project? Do you want it to have a really chic feeling where you have like these really awesome, you know, chic martini glasses where you're serving drinks up? Do you want it to have more of like a classic whiskey bar, like a dark, you know, like leather and wood where you're sipping whiskey cocktails like Sazerac's rolled old fashions on a single large rock in a really nice robust feeling rocks glass with a nice heavy bottom? Uh, those are two very different feels for two very different types of cocktail experiences. So as you build your bar beyond the basics, these are some of the things um, that maybe don't affect the flavor of the cocktail based on what's in the glass, but they affect the flavor of the cocktail and that they impact the entire experience of it and the way that we form emotional connections with it. So really cool stuff. Any any Are there any places that you see flavor research going that are particularly interesting? I think there's been
0: a lot of progress lately on... Physiology of this, and I think there'll be more to come. or starting to understand the genetics, for instance, of how taste perception works and flavor perception works. And I think one line of research that's probably coming down the line is a better understanding of, of the connection between the molecules that are involved with smell, for instance, and the experience of it. And it's 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 not it's a tough not to crack because we have a very good understanding of molecules. <laughs> Uh, we have a good understanding of smell, but it's not clear yet exactly what is it about the shape of different kinds of molecules that trigger different kinds of sensory experiences. Are there commonalities, for instance, among you know, plant molecules that give rise to commonalities in the way that plants smell to us? And it's not completely understood yet how that works. So I think there'll be more to come on in the chemistry of, of smell perception for sure. Um, there's some work on artificial olfaction, artificial noses coming out that I think is interesting. Humans, are, we have pretty good noses, you know. For a long time, we thought that, and it's still kind of basically understood that we are organisms that aren't very good at smelling <laughs> compared to other organisms, right? And compared to dogs, as we said earlier. But there's a recent paper that came out that kind of said that that's sort of a myth. And This is an interesting approach, and we've taken it for granted that, oh, dogs are great at smelling things and humans are terrible. And there are certainly physiological differences that account for that. But this recent paper kind of took all the evidence and said, you know, we're not quite that bad. <laughs> and it's part of a, it's a myth that developed in the 19th century in, in response to, to Darwin, really, and people said that Olfaction is a more primitive sense. And so it makes sense that animals would be better at olfaction than us because we've evolved past that point where we're better at vision. We don't need the lower level animalistic senses anymore. So, so they push this idea that olfaction was less developed in humans because we don't need it as much anymore. But in fact, there are cases where you know certain molecules that we can detect at lower concentrations than dogs can. So there are some cases. I mean, they're, they're rare, but but there sure. are cases that we can do that. <laughs> um, there have been studies of humans tracking odors. A study where they put pe- blindfolds on people and put a line of odor in the grass and have them crawl on hands and knees and see if they could sense track like a dog does, and people can do it. <laughs> really, a lot more slowly than a dog does, with a lot more errors, but people people could do it reliably. And it's experiments of blocking different nostrils to see if you can impair their detecting uh, the <laughs> detection of the direction of the smell and things like that. Okay. Um, Research on smell and flavor and olfaction and taste has expanded a lot over the last 15 to 20 years. And I think as we go forward, we'll see more stuff like that coming out
1: definitely i want to take a take a moment to mention a particular book that was really influential to me coming to the world of olfactory research and and flavor perception and it's a book called neurogastronomy by uh, a scientist named gordon shepherd and he uh, does a really great job putting things together uh, my one warning about the book is that if you don't have a background in Biology or psychology, it can be a little bit dense, and you might have to take it slowly and look up some of the some of the terms to to get I guess a more common sense understanding of what he's saying. And it, it, I actually almost quit the book halfway through because it got it started to get dense. But then what I what I realized is once I got through some of the foundation building that he did is there was super, there's so much going on with smell and flavor that it takes a long time to explain all the mechanisms. And it, toward the end of the book, there were just so many really awesome takeaways. So if you want, if you're interested in some of the very earliest research on, Flavor perception and uh, the brain, then that's a a good text uh, to use as, like, sort of the I'd call it quasi definitive in terms of what's available to lay people out there, you know, that you can just pick up on Amazon. I'm sure that there's um, some other texts. I think we might have, yeah, there's there's a question about books later on, lightning round. You want to just start the lightning round with the book question? Okay, let's do it. Since we're on the topic. Sure. Yeah.
0: Um, There's a book that just came out this year. Um, It's a Sort written for a more popular audience than the neurogastronomy book, it's probably a little bit more accessible to people by uh, author named Bob Holmes. It's just called Flavor, and it's it's good. He, he talks about sort of all the sort of most recent research and older research and interviews with some of the uh, important researchers in the field and so on. Um, another book that I really like that's less about taste and flavor and um, more about digestion is Mary Roach's work, um, a book called Gulp that she wrote that's more about digestion, <laughs> digestive tract. But she also talks about ingestion as part of that, which I think is interesting as well. So th- those would be two that I would recommend.
1: Nice. Yeah. And I will, folks, as always, link to those in the show notes. So Vortex, just to review, we mentioned it way back in the beginning, the French dude back in the 1700s, uh, Briat Savarin, which I'll speak spell out in the show notes, but it's called Meditations on Transcendental Gastronomy. I will say that one of the things in that book, Briat Salvarani, so it's a book
0: about food in general and his meditations on food. And he has a whole collection of aphorisms about eating and drinking that are quite interesting. One of them that is sort of sexist 17th century Frenchman, he said, uh, a meal that ends without cheese
1: is like a beautiful woman with only one eye. <laughs> I do remember that one. Yeah, the aphorisms. The aphorisms are amazing in that book. He was—he was sort of. I would describe him as sort of like the Ben Franklin, uh, exactly. you know, of Paris uh, at that time. He was uh, never married, uh, but he was always—he always had his hand in something. And he, he had to flee because he was in trouble with the current uh, administration. So he actually got mm-hmm. to come to the United States and experience our food culture back in the in the early days of uh, maybe even before our nation. So uh, that book and then Neurogastronomy by Gordon Shepherd and then Flavor by Bob Holmes and Mary Roach's Gulp. Those will all be linked in the show notes uh, so you can check them out and uh, do some reading on your own. So we're in the lightning round right now and the questions are brief, but your answers don't have to be. This is just sort of like us getting to know you as a person. You have a really interesting personal background with food and flavor. Uh, You've made an entire career about it. So I'm really, I'm curious to hear some of your answers about these cocktail related questions. So what is your favorite cocktail? And if you can't name a favorite of all time. Uh, what's something that you've been interested in recently? I like classic cocktails
0: these days, so I'm all about the old fashioned these days or the Manhattan. I like any cocktail that makes me feel like I'm in an old movie. I think that's the answer. Nice. Um, I like the simplicity of them, you know, there's sort of just a few basic tastes, nothing too fancy in there, and I like sort of high quality
1: ingredients. Yeah. You know. any any favorites uh favorite ingredients uh in terms of brands i don't think i can answer that one i'm not much of a sure <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. that way but yeah no that's yeah. I, I think it's i think it's worth uh worth noting that uh you know if you're gonna if you're gonna go out and, and enjoy a drink with few ingredients that mm-hmm. it's worth it to put some time into those ingredients my, go-
0: make- my go-to bourbon is this the uh woodford reserve which i really
1: like oh yeah, yeah it's re- uh, woodford's really really lovely and they um they have an entire uh, entire line. One of the things that I found really interesting about some of the uh, larger brands, we're in, a, we're in a, an age of craft right now where everybody there seems to be a, a distillery popping up every you know few days mm-hmm. somewhere. One of the nice things about the larger brands is that they've paid off their barrels, they've paid off their facilities, they've paid off their stills, and they can focus on Putting together really high quality products and offering them at a perhaps a lower price point than some of the craft distillers that are still, you know, doing things like paying off the debt that they use to acquire all those fancy French barrels that they're using. So it's uh, you know it's maybe less sexy to use uh, a larger producer, like a, you know, like a a Jim Beam is a perfect example, or like a wild turkey, you know, or, uh, you know, any of those popular bourbons out there, then it might be to go to your local micro distillery. And I always do suggest going to your, you know, your local distilleries and checking them out. But if you're looking for value for at the price point, some of those larger producers like Woodford do an excellent job giving quality ingredients. So just a little, little tangent there. Next question, and we may have already answered this, but what is your favorite wine or spirit and what do you like about it?
0: I'd say my wine these days is, a, is Pinot Noir. I like the, like I spent some time in Burgundy uh-huh. and traveling around and, and discovering that region. And I like the, the, the balance in a Pinot. It doesn't have the body of a Cote du Rhone. And it can pair with a wide range of things that other stronger red wines can't. Um, so that's that's the choice I think. Oh, yeah.
1: I um, uh, I I was able to go to Burgundy with my wife and her parents actually a few years ago, and it was a fascinating trip. I, I believe, I think they say that that Burgundy is the hardest wine region to learn, certainly in France, because of the way it was broken up. Right. This is my understanding that the vineyards in bordeaux for example are, are larger chunks of land owned by single people but in if you go to burgundy for some reason, uh, w- during the revolution, these were really plotted off into really small little plots, and and so you can have different wines in these. You know, you can have a, a wine plot that is much smaller than a normal vineyard that produces only one wine by one producer, and then the plot next to it that would that used to be connected but is now owned by someone else. So it's just infinitely complex, but uh, it's pretty remarkable because you can be within the walls of Clos haut and you can get over hundred dollars a bottle and you get
0: on the other side of the wall and you're gonna knock $20 off the price of the ball
1: yeah and it, yeah it's literally just a wall I remember the, uh, the summer that I went there there was a hailstorm or something and it just knocked out like one side of a hill and the other side of the hill was fine but it knocked out the expensive side of the hill yeah and everyone was freaking out so yeah really really cool really interesting wine region if anybody ever has the chance to travel to France you mentioned that you're that you you do a, at least a little bit of bartending at home. Um, is there any advice that you would give to a home bartender, either from personal experience or maybe as it pertains to uh, you know flavor related things? Any any bar hacks related to flavor that you can offer?
0: I'm not, yeah, I'm not much of a bartender, but I would say you know, I, I do like to cook, so there are parallels there. And I think the 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 real lesson is to experiment and don't be afraid to take risks and experiment and if you don't want to experiment for friends you can experiment for yourself but take some chances and mix things together that you wouldn't ordinarily do and expand your repertoire a little bit one of the other things in the context of of odor and flavor perception is you know we're all envious of people that can sip their cocktail and immediately identify the 10 or 15 different flavors that are involved in it some of that is fake <laughs> but <laughs> some of it is is real and you can train yourself to do these things they, they you do learn and there are kits available to help you do that. And I said earlier that we are generally, humans are really bad at identifying odors and generally um, We're not good at coming up with the names for even familiar smells. Even though you, know, you can smell something and say, oh, I know what this is. It smells really familiar to me. Um, but we would have difficulty coming up with the name. But that can be trained and there are kits, um, there's a French kit called the Nez du Vin that's available I think on Amazon. There's a, a There are wine aroma tasting kits in English that come with collections of vials of the most common odorants that are aromas that are present in, in most wine varietals. And so you can train yourself to recognize these things and identify them and then train yourself to pick them out of complex mixtures. Mixtures are difficult. Most of the research on picking out components of odor mixtures shows that even the best among us can only pick out three different components. In, a, in an odor mixture if you're mixing smells and flavors together sure but it can be trained and it can be you know even so I think that would heightens the experience a little bit
1: definitely to be able to it uh, to pick out components and make a game of that actually I, I remember when I was mm. I first got into flavor you know in a serious way when I, I was taking a wine class through an organization called the WSET the wine and spirits education trust a great organization great classes and the first class or two I took, I was, there's people of all different ages and experience levels taking this class. And I, at one point during the first or second class, it was heavy on tasting because the people who ran this particular class were very insistent on, you know, like you be, the best way to do it is to get in there and taste it. And I, and so we talked about, we tasted different wines and we talked about the flavors that we were getting. It's people were saying, Oh yeah, I'm getting, you know, like dry, like a dried prune, like a, a black currant, not a red currant, a black currant." And I just, I just wanted to flip the table and walk out because I could, like I tasted, I was like, it's sweet. It's red, you know? And, and by the time we got to like the third or fourth class out of like this six class series, I was actually able to pick some of that stuff out. And it was really exciting to me to be able to do that. So I, I definitely agree that it can be trained. And the other resource I'm going to, to link to if I can find it is it I I believe there's a scratch and sniff wine and a scratch Mm -hmm. and sniff whiskey book out there do you know any I don't know the names (laughs) of those there's a podcast called the Tim Ferriss show and I believe that the person that responsible for developing these was interviewed on that show so I will dig that up for you folks and we'll link to that in the show notes there are also things that are helpful are the, the flavor wheels
0: they make flavor wheels that are you know specific to red wines and specific to white wines and specific to whiskeys and so on um, and you can find them on the internet. And the way they're structured is that you you would taste something and you start at the middle of the wheel. And the middle wheel is divided up into fruity, smoky, earthy. Mm-hmm. And so most of us can taste something and say, oh, there's something fruity in there. So you would start at fruity and then you work your way out. And then it says, "Okay, is it a red fruit, or is it a green fruit, or a yellow fruit?" And so you work your way out to the to, to the outer edges of the wheel, where you get specific into, "Oh, this is black currant flavor," or "This is really? um, this is strawberry flavored," and so on. And and those using those wheels, I found you can you can
1: develop those a little bit, I think. That's a really nice way to scaffold your way towards something exactly. a little bit more specific. I like that. Two more really quick flavor questions, if you, if you don't mind. Do you, you have, you have a minute? Ahead. Yeah. Great. Are there any flavors in your experience that are particularly difficult to incorporate into cooking or cocktails? And the way that I like to think about these flavors is uh, using the Superman metaphor, like flavor kryptonites. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Cooking, I can't
1: think of anything in cooking that you can eventually work into a dish somehow.
0: With cocktails, I would think that, you know, once you get into umami, it probably gets a little bit difficult in a cocktail. And maybe there are drinks out there that I'm not aware of, but I'm not, I don't know of anything that uses mushroom in a cocktail or soy sauce in a cocktail. And I know people have tried, but I just can't imagine how you get that to work. So those for me would be my cocktail. Kryptonites, I'm not sure how mushroom cocktail would work for me.
1: Yeah. I can't think Mm -hmm. of, I honestly cannot think of a single cocktail I've had and Mm -hmm. I I bet they're out there. Mm -hmm. None of me doubts that they are definitely out there, but I don't think I've ever come across one with mushrooms. So we might have to dig some of that up Mm -hmm. and see, see what bartenders are doing to make that work. And those are those umami flavors, right? And umami is the,
0: is the sort of meaty, savory flavor that's present in things like soy sauce and mushrooms and um, seaweed, those kinds of things. And they signal that umami is the taste of proteins, really. It's a, a glutamate receptor in your tongue. They're responding to the proteins. And so, you know, we don't put meat in our cocktails. And I think this is such a violation of expectation of what can be in a cocktail that that would be a difficult thing to move.
1: It's a challenge though. It's interesting too, because a lot of the things you just listed were salty as well. So Mm -hmm. seaweed tends to be salty, soy sauce salty, but the the salt might not pose as much of a problem Mm -hmm. as the glutamate you're saying. So the presence of the protein. So that's that's really interesting. And I, I could imagine something like bacon in a cocktail, which is part of that umami, but it's also
0: got the sweetness and the saltiness. You know, I could I could see that working its way in somewhere. Definitely. But sort of straight up meatiness in a cocktail probably be difficult.
1: Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Well we'll you know what? We might have to uh, experiment and in or investigate further into that for maybe a theme episode. And the other flavor kind of lightning round question I had just in general, and this doesn't have to be in the cocktail world, but it can be. Are there any underappreciated flavors out there? Like anything, it's sort of like unsung flavor heroes. And and if so, why do you think that they're underappreciated? Well, my, my big
0: underappreciated flavor is cassis or black currant. And, you know, we use cassis in cocktails. So bartenders know it, but we don't know it much in food. And there's a reason for that is because it's not, traditionally cultivated in the United States it was for a while and then it was blamed as being a, a host as part of a, a disease that destroyed elm trees I think in the, in the United States okay so it was banned the cultivation of cassis was banned in the United States and it's still active in Europe so I first discovered cassis the cassis flavor in France in jam it's used it's used widely it's not just used as a cocktail mixer and it, it's a small black purplish black berry that is is really sour on its own, so it needs a lot of sugar, especially to make a jam out of it. And the flavor has a complexity to it, and a sweetness and a roundness that that, that is unique, I think, among fruits. And so that's my big underappreciated fruit. And you can you can get it in the United States now. There are companies that um, sell the plants. You can grow it again in certain regions of the United States. And so there are, there's a farm in New York that sells plants and berries. And you can, you can get it enough. I've, I've ordered them online and made
1: jam here with it. And it, it's cool. it's a great flavor. Yeah. Nice. Well, all right. So folks look up, uh, look up black currants or cassis. Uh, really interesting. Just a little side note. There's a French, I guess a, we could call it a two ingredient cocktail maybe mm-hmm. called Kier. Correct. That's right. I R. And can you talk about that just briefly? Right. The Kier
0: is named after one of the mayors of Dijon, France is uh. forget his first name but his last name was Kier so they named this cocktail after him and it's a white wine mixed with um, Cassis liquor Uh, or the Kier Royale which is even better is a champagne a white champagne with
1: uh, Cassis cocktail and Cassis um, liqueur in it as well. Yep. So if you can get your hands on a bottle of cassis, they, they might call it creme de cassis, mm-hmm. then it's a really fun way to, especially as it's getting warmer out, you take a nice, uh, you take a, essentially a white table wine or a white cheap sparkling wine that has a high acidity, and then you add this nice sweet uh, liqueur in there. And what that does is that it provides, uh, as Dan was mentioning, the that really exceptionally complex and round flavor of the cassis or the 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 current uh and it it, uh, supplements that really nice acidity of the wine it's super refreshing uh and it's also a little dangerous you can you can maybe uh they, they go down maybe a little bit too easily but a really fun summer drink for sure Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to speak at such great length about flavor. Really appreciate you um, sharing your knowledge with our listeners. If anybody had a question for you about flavor or wanted to get in touch and thank you for being on this episode, uh, how might they get in touch with you?
0: Sure. I think email is best. My email would be dmccall at Gettysburg.edu. Great. We also have a website. If you Google uh, Gettysburg odor and flavor lab, you should come up with
1: our website great. And we will, I will list both of those in the show notes. So you can check out all the great research that's being done here at Gettysburg college, my alma mater, go bullets until next time drink responsibly and experiment boldly. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening. I just want to remind you that this episode might be over but the journey and the discussion are just beginning. If you're excited about the content in this or any other episode, please tell us. Follow us on Instagram at Modern Bar Cart for recipes and great product tips. Or stalk me personally at Quixologist. That's Q-U-I-X-ologist. You can also like us on Facebook by searching Modern Bar Cart. Or hit us up directly via email by sending a note to podcast at modernbarcart.com that email address by the way is also the one that you should use if you've got any cocktail or home bartending related questions you'd like us to address or if you think you have a unique perspective on the cocktail world and would like to be interviewed for all to hear i'll see you next time but until then drink responsibly and experiment boldly